Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Make Walters your spot to watch the Capitals march to the Stanley Cup. Plenty of TVs and beer selections. Game two is Thursday night in Florida. Puck drops at 7.30. You can also catch all of the NBA playoffs at Walters. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Joe infield back and a line drive left center field chasing Robles this one with a dive gets by him and goes to the center field wall two runs score Joe racing around second heading for third he's going to be in there standing with a triple four runs home in the inning and it's four to one Rockies and now Corbin with two out faces Jonathan Daza and a check swing grounder Corbin dives off the mound feels it from his knees third base side of the mound throws him out at first to retire the side what a play by Patrick Corbin. Makes two great fielding plays, one better than the other. Here in the bottom of the eighth, the longest outing of the year for a Nationals pitcher is eight innings. For me, the story today should be about Patrick. And, um, you know, for me, he, he's back. You know, if he continues to do that, you know, he's going to help us win a lot of games. But he was lights out today. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, May 5th, 2022. Cinco de Mayo, 2022. Shout out to Vinny Castilla and Esteban Loaiza. Along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It is something else what is happening with the Nationals starting pitching in their three-game series at the Colorado Rockies. The series, of course, is happening at Coors Field, which has been a torture chamber for Major League pitchers for decades. We, of course, have this Nats pitching staff, which, shall we say, isn't the greatest. And yet, so far in this series... We have had two of the best outings this season from Nats starters. Tuesday night, 10-2 Nats win. Eric Fetty, one run, seven innings, becoming the first Nats starting pitcher to complete at least seven innings in a game this season. And on Wednesday night, and I can't believe I'm about to say what I'm going to say, Patrick Corbin threw a complete game at Coors Field. Let me let that sink in. Patrick Corbin threw a complete game at Coors Field. Now, the complete game did come in a loss for the Nats. They lost at the Rockies 5-2, but that was not the fault of Patrick Corbin, who was good for a second consecutive start. The Nats offense and defense, unfortunately, were not good. That's now 9-17 on the season. But Mark, uh, raise your hand if you expected this from Nats starting pitching in this series at the Rockies. I mean, come on now. We all saw this coming. 
15 combined innings from the starters in the first two games of the series. I mean, next thing you're going to tell me is that they played both of these games in under two hours and 40 minutes each. That would never happen at Coors Field, right? That's the amazing thing. It's like 1955, these last two games for the Nats. It's been incredible to watch. And the game on Wednesday night started like 25 minutes late due to rain and ended up being done at a halfway decent time, given it's a game for us on the East Coast being played out in Colorado. Two hours and 18 minutes. I've never seen anything like it at Coors Field. It's remarkable. Before I forget, you mentioned the great Vinny Castilla. I actually just walked by a photo of him from his glory days with the Rockies. Because remember, before he became a Nationals legend in 2005, he was a Rockies legend. And he's uh, up there among uh, you know the many greats over the years here at Coors Field. So it was nice to see that. I've covered a lot of games in this ballpark. I don't think I've ever covered a game quite like what we saw on this night where if you take away one defensive mistake by Alcides Escobar, and we're going to get to this, but if you take that one thing away, it is as close to a perfect game as you're ever going to see somebody pitch here. That's how good Patrick Corbin was. That's how quick he was, how efficient he was. And it's just a shame that it gets wiped out by that because you're going to look back at the end of the year at his pitching line and say, oh, well, that's a that's a pretty decent start, but it's not going to really show just how effective he was. He was phenomenal. It's nuts with Corbin because he makes you want to scream with how bad he can be and the extent to which he can just get worked by an opposing team. And yet, as we've seen these last two starts, last Thursday afternoon against the Miami Marlins and on Wednesday night at the Colorado Rockies, there is still something there, you know? And so this thing of like, demote him to the bullpen or DFA him, like, no, there's something there still. And as we have discussed, it's not like the Nats are oozing with better pitching options. But like, this is what is so maddening about Patrick Corbin. He isn't some lost cause. He just refuses to like be on track, start in and start out. But as we saw on Wednesday night, He's capable of being good. It's like a, a, a student, right, who's capable of getting A's, but like continues to get F's. And you're like, why do you keep doing that? You know, it's like with Corbin, man, he teases you with this. And it was really impressive the way he performed on Wednesday night. This is why he's still out there. And yes, some of it has to do with what their other options are. But because deep down, they do know he has the ability on any given night to do this. Consider this 94 pitches in eight innings. No walks, three strikeouts. It was quick outs. He completed the first inning on four pitches. He had another inning. The sixth inning was eight pitches. The seventh inning was 10 pitches. The eighth inning, his last inning of the game, was five pitches. I've never seen an outing like that from anybody. I don't care who you are. Max Scherzer never did that. Steven Strasburg never did that. Now, the Rockies are being super aggressive. They were going after him, and somewhere along the way, they kind of realized that and said, okay, we're going to force them to put the ball in play. And for the most part, except for one disastrous inning, it worked. So credit to Corbin and credit to Riley Adams, who has now been behind the plate for three of his last four starts, all of them his best starts of the year. There's something working between those two, whatever that is, to the extent that I think we may start calling Riley Adams Patrick Corbin's personal catcher. They worked great together. They really did. So we'll see what happens in five days from now. But I, I kind of like what I saw out of both of them today. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Whatever you have to do, you do, if it means helping out old Corby, uh, given the way things have gone for him in recent years. So let's get into his outing on Wednesday night. Five runs, three earned in eight innings. It is an eight-inning complete game in a road loss uh, for the Nats. He gave up nine hits, a triple, a double, 
excuse me, a triple, two doubles, and six singles, but he issued no walks. He had the three strikeouts, like you said, 94 pitches, 70 strikes, 70 strikes versus just 24 balls. Corbin retired 12 of the final 13 batters he faced. He began his outing by tossing scoreless first, second, and third innings, despite some defensive boo-boos by the Nats shortstop. Alcides Escobar, bottom of the second, a two-out throwing error to load the bases. Uh, Second baseman Cesar Hernandez committed a fielding error to begin the bottom of the third. But the inning that ended up defining the game, the bottom of the fourth. Corbin charged with five runs, though just three of them were earned. He gave up a one-out single to Ryan McMahon, gave up a one-out first pitch opposite field single to Brendan Rodgers, and then came the moment that uh, in so many ways ended up turning what could have been an outstanding outing for Corbin into just like a good one. Corbin induces a double play grounder off the bat of Yonatan Daza, but Alcides Escobar, another error. Corbin delivers, and a swing and a ground ball to short. Escobar juggles it and cannot make a play. He got down to a knee, trying to throw to second to start a potential double play. As he goes down to a knee, he juggles the ball. A one-out fielding error as he bobbled the grounder to load the bases. And then Corbin did give up back-to-back big-time hits. I mean, this is where Corbin went wrong. He gave up a one-out first pitch, two-run opposite field double by Jose Iglesias to right field for a 2-1 Rockies lead. And then Corbin gave up a one-out first pitch, two-run triple by Connor Joe to the left center field gap, past a diving Victor Robles for a 4-1 Rockies lead. Uh, Corbin then induced a one-out first pitch RBI ground out by Charlie Blackman for a 5-1 Rockies lead. So before we uh, properly skewer old Alcides Escobar, I think this is the one criticism you would have of Corbin. Escobar makes the mistake, and then Corbin unravels to a degree. Two-run double by Iglesias, two-run triple by Joe. Yeah, and Patrick called those the two worst pitches he made all night. So, I mean, he wasn't trying to uh, overlook that, wasn't trying to sugarcoat that. You do as a pitcher when something happens behind you, you got to overcome it and get the outs yourself. So those were bad, of course. And, you know, there's this axiom in baseball, you never assume the double play. (laughs) The official scorer is not allowed to consider that error as though it would have been the inning ending. And that's why some of those runs end up being earned. But let's be honest, that's a double play grounder. It has to be a double play grounder. It is 99 out of 100 times. And if he makes that play, the inning is over and everything that happens after it does not happen. So that's why I think we can, you know, talk about Corbin's outing as if this was truly a great outing and not just a good outing. But it doesn't work that way. When there is a mistake behind you, you have to overcome it. He did not do that. He gave up the two big hits. But that's really a blip. And and if, you know, we're looking big picture here, as tough as it is to accept the loss, you still have to come out of this and say, boy, if that is who Corbin can be, and it's now three of his last four starts that he's been pretty good, and this one was the best of them, that's a major development for this team because all of a sudden this guy isn't a lost cause, but maybe somebody who can actually give you a chance to win when he takes the mound every fifth day. Now, let's see. His next two starts, as it lines up, are going to be the Mets and the Astros. Okay, very different challenge. So let's see how he handles that. But for the first time in a long time, the needle is pointing up for Patrick Corbin. And I don't know that any of us, you know, a week or two ago could have seen that coming. Yeah. So he ended last season well, if people remember that. Uh, Patrick Corbin last September pitched well in four or five starts, but then he started this season in a not so great way. And things really got bad in that 7 1 loss to San Francisco at Nationals Park on April 22nd, seven runs 
in one and two thirds innings. And that's the night that we all talked about. It felt different. He got booed, etc. But to your point, three of the last four outings, he has been decent, if not good. 5-3 loss at Pittsburgh on April 17th, two runs in five and a third innings. His most recent outing coming into Wednesday night, 3-2 loss to Miami at Nationals Park last Thursday afternoon. Three runs, two earned in six innings, but he was better than that final line indicated. He had eight strikeouts in that game. And now we have what he did on Wednesday night at the Rockies. So, you know, I don't want to be like Charlie Brown with Lucy in the football and like say, you know, oh, maybe this is finally it for Corbin, right? But it is encouraging, okay? And I think we do see one more time, like why he doesn't just get demoted or cut because there is still something there. And it's just a matter of him consistently displaying that something. The fear I have, though, and I think everyone listening has this fear, is that his next outing will be, you know, eight runs in three innings. Like, that's the way it's kind of gone. Just when you think that maybe possibly he's been fixed, he goes back to struggling. Just like once you think that he's a lost cause, he goes back to pitching well. He does just enough to stay in that rotation, and he does just enough to make you think that he may get back on track. Yeah, and as we've seen, it's such a fine line with him between what can be a good start and what can be a bad start because there's only one way he goes about pitching, you know? He's either got it or he doesn't. And when he doesn't have it, he can't figure it out. There are very few starts that you say, oh boy, Patrick really struggled early on, but he salvaged it. He started doing something different and found a way to get through it. No, he either has the fastball and the slider working or he doesn't, and it's an ugly picture that happens. So yes, would it shock me if the Mets clobber him next time out? No, it wouldn't. You know, you hope that's not the case for his sake, for the team's sake, for everybody's sake. You hope that he can find some good things from this and find a way to repeat it. But there's no guarantees of that, of course. And against a couple of very good lineups that he's going to be facing in the next week, you know, we're still in a wait and see mode. Like you still have to prove to us something here. But I thought it was telling. Davey Martinez afterwards said, for me, Patrick is back. Like he was that insistent on it. Now he may eat those words when it's all said and done, but he was pretty adamant about it. And he was especially encouraged by what he saw from the lefty in this game. I'm glad Davey's encouraged. I wouldn't be making no proclamations like that, man. I would I would wait on that one. Yeah, uh, that may be something you come to regret. But good for Davey. I mean, it's good to be talking in a positive way about Patrick Corbin of all the negativity in recent years. Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. It is Window Nation's graduation sale. If your old windows are failing or just not making the grade, here's a homework assignment so that you get an A. Call Window Nation and get to the head of the class. Window Nation has installed over a million windows in over 150,000 homes, with 96% of those homes needing no follow-up service. Over 1,500 custom window Combinations are available, vinyl and fiberglass. You can increase the value of your home with curb appeal and save money on your energy bills by replacing your old inefficient windows with new energy efficient Window Nation windows. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. Make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you, but give Window Nation a call, 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. One more time, 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. On three and two and two out, the runners go. Here's the pitch. Swing to ground, ball to short. Good concentration by Escobar. That one right through the runner, but a low throw. All right, let us have the Alcides Escobar conversation. We're going to try to make this different from previous conversations. But Wednesday night was another brutal night for Alcides Escobar. Now, you know, he has been a bit better offensively lately. I do want to make mention of that. But Wednesday night was an awful night, okay? He was an at starting shortstop and number nine batter. He went 0 for 3 with three strikeouts, okay? Let's not lose sight of that. And he committed two errors. Uh, and each error came off a grounder by Yonatan Daza. For some reason, the Daza ground ball proved to be challenging for all CDs on Wednesday night. Bottom of the second, he committed a two-out throwing error to load the bases. Runners on first and second, Escobar made a bad throw off a hot grounder off the bat of Daza. And Josh Bell was unable to come through with a backhanded catch of Escobar's throw. And then the big error, the one we just uh, described, uh, Rockies five-run fourth, Escobar a one-out fielding error. He had runners on first and second. Escobar bobbled a grounder off the bat of Daza to load the bases. I mean, each error was bad. That throwing error, you know, I don't want to say it was a lazy throw, but boy, it sure kind of looked like a lazy throw. It looked like a casual throw to me anyway, watching the game. I mean, he's having a woeful season, okay? He's now batting 194. He has a 256 on base. He has a 222 slugging percentage. He came into this game on Wednesday night, minus four defensive runs saved. He then goes out and commits two errors on Wednesday night. At some point, there's a breaking point here, right? I mean, at some point, the Nats get off the All-Cities Escobar train. We get it with Luis Garcia. He's hitting really well at AAA Rochester. The Nats do have major defensive concerns. I still come back to, would he be that much worse than Alcides Escobar right now at shortstop? 
Do you think it's possible that Wednesday night was the breaking point for Escobar, or do you think we're going to continue to see him as, for the most part, the Nats every game shortstop? I could see somebody else, probably D. Strange Gordon, who's just back from the COVID IL. I could see him starting Thursday's game, but I don't think D. Strange Gordon is suddenly going to become their starting everyday shortstop. And I don't believe that yet Luis Garcia is going to be their starting shortstop based on everything that we've been hearing from the club officials. And I don't think that's changed in the last few days. Now, the day may be coming at some point when that happens, but we've detailed why he's not up here yet. And the problem is it's easy to look at what Escobar is doing and just say, oh, well, there's a solution waiting for you at AAA in Luis Garcia. They're not going to call Garcia up based on what Alcides Escobar does. They're going to call Garcia up when they believe he is ready for it. And they don't want him to come up and make a ton of errors. Okay. They want him to come up and have success because they think he has a future for them, either as a shortstop or as a second baseman. And they don't want to do anything that might jeopardize his long-term development. So the real problem here, the real mistake on the Nationals part, if you will, is that they don't have a viable plan B for Escobar to somebody else to be a placeholder until Garcia is ready. Like we said, D. Strange Gordon, you know, could do it, but I don't think they want to do that. A. Ray Adrianza, if he was healthy, maybe he would have been the guy, although I never really got the sense that they viewed him as a starting shortstop. He was a, you know, utility infielder. Lucius Fox, we saw, is not really the guy. They don't have that other player waiting in the wings just to step in and hold down the fort for a month or two until they decide that it's time to call up Garcia. So if there's a failure on the organization's part, I think that's where it is. But short of that, and not wanting to call up Garcia before they truly believe he's ready, I don't know what else they do other than stick Escobar out there. And as hard as that is to watch at times, we have to acknowledge what this team is trying to accomplish this year, what their goals are, what their motivations are. I think they are okay living with him out there costing them in the short term rather than doing something else that they think could hurt them more in the long term. So there's a school of thought in sports that you sort of have to get the bad out of you. You know, that like when you're young and talented, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to struggle. And so you just kind of have to get those out of you and then you can really start to have success. There's a big part of me that feels like call him up, put him at shortstop, even if it is bad for a while, if he's who you hope him to be, he'll work his way through those struggles. This reminds me of in the NFL where a team will draft a quarterback and then won't want to start him because they're so afraid of what might happen if he starts. And so what happens is they start some veteran and the veteran stinks and then they put in the rookie and the rookie ends up actually not being that bad. We've seen that time and again in the NFL. You know, the Houston Texans went through that with Deshaun Watson. The Chargers went through that with Justin Herbert. Those guys didn't start to begin their rookie seasons. These veterans started and then those guys went in and were great. And you're like, why weren't these guys starting from the get-go? And I'm not trying to say... Luis Garcia is Justin Herbert, but, you know, sometimes there's like an anti-youth feeling, I feel like, in sports where you assume the worst and you feel like if bad things happen, the guy will never recover. And I just wonder if maybe you might be better off, bring him up. Yeah, he'll make some mistakes, but maybe that's the way for him to learn. I mean, he has played a lot at AAA over these last few years. I think there's an argument at this point to be made. There's not much more for him to do or to accomplish at AAA. So I just wonder about that. If maybe he should just learn defensively at the majors, it might be rough at times, but that might also expedite the learning curve for Luis Garcia defensively. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and I'm not saying I disagree with it. I think if it was going to be at second base, they would have done it already. I think it's because it's shortstop, 
because he hasn't played quite as much there over the years and because the performance has been pretty bad there. And there are things that are just the fundamental way they're trying to get him to play the game. They want him to do it in that lower pressure environment. And up here, it may be too much pressure and cause, you know, worse habits to develop and all that stuff. Now, maybe there's a point, maybe we're already there, maybe we've already passed that point where you just, like you're saying, just go for broke, do it, see what happens, whatever happens, happens. I'm just telling you what I'm hearing from the people who make these decisions for the team. They've been pretty adamant up to this point that they don't believe he's ready for it and that bringing him up could cause more damage than whatever benefit there might be to making the switch there. Cesar Hernandez has played some shortstop. Do you think there would be any consideration to putting Cesar at shortstop? Probably not. Um, see, this, this all along, we've gone back to this. It does make me question why he was the guy that went out and signed right away. Yes, he's played short. He's played some third. But really, they view him and he views himself as a second baseman first and foremost. So when you make that move, remember, that was their first significant move of the offseason. You're basically saying, okay, Luis Garcia is not going to be our second baseman now. All along, I thought that seemed a little weird to me because I always got the sense that they didn't really believe in Luis as a shortstop. But now you're saying, okay, we're going to sort of force that issue and see if he can play it. So I don't think that's where they would go with it. Um, you know, you never say never. It's kind of hard to figure out exactly how this is going to play out here. But that's not one that I've really sensed. I think, if anything, it would be D. Gordon for a little while, or, you know, if Lucius Fox does well. Uh, at AAA, maybe they bring him back up and give him a chance to do some things. Some kind of stopgap there, uh, you know, until they've determined once and for all that Luis Garcia deserves to be the guy. Well, Wednesday night was a rough night for the Nats offense. Uh, the Nats bats went back to being quiet off having been really good in three of the previous four games. Nats on Wednesday night, just two runs, just seven hits, a homer to go with six singles, just one walk. Uh, we had a rare bad game for Josh Bell, uh, Bell went 0 for 4 on Wednesday night. We've really gotten spoiled by him. We're not used to seeing that. Uh, Juan Soto, 1 for 4, had a single, did strike out twice. Uh, no Nelson Cruz on Wednesday night. He did not play due to the back stiffness. And so we saw something that maybe we're going to be seeing some more of, given how hot this guy remains. Yadiel Hernandez on Wednesday night was an ad starting DH and number 4 batter. And he continues to hit 2 for 4 with two singles, top of the second, a leadoff opposite field single to left center field, top of the fourth, a two-out single to right center field. 66 plate appearances for Yadiel Hernandez now this season. He's batting 371. He has a 394 on base, a 532 slugging. This is really something, how hot he is. It really feels like watching these games every time he comes up to hit, he's going to get a hit. I mean, I know the phrase locked in gets overused. He is locked in right now. You know, you talk about being in the zone, like that's where Yadiel Hernandez is right now. So in the press box as he comes up to bat, we're kind of joking with each other, predicting what we think he's going to do in each at bat. And he comes up the first time and I said, you know, I single to left center. Boom, single to left center. What do you know? He does it. Next time up, uh, okay, well, maybe he'll go right center this time. And I said, boy, there's a big gap there. If he could get it all the way to the wall, it's so big here, he could end up hitting a triple. He hits a base hit to right center, ends up being a single because they cut it off. It It is remarkable. He's like doing things on command. At that moment, after those first two at-bats, he's actually batting 383 
for the season. He doesn't have enough plate appearances to qualify for the league leaderboard, but if you dropped it down to like 60 plate appearances, he actually would be leading all of the majors at that point with a 383 batting average. That's how good he's been. You have to keep putting him out there. Those two hits came off a lefty tonight. And Austin Gomber, who was really effective uh, against just about everybody else, so it's not like uh, that was some you know weak left-hander that he was facing. You have to keep putting him out there one way or another, whether it's DH, left field. You find a way to get him in the lineup as long as this keeps going. I don't know if he can do it all season long, but in the situation they're in, they can't afford to bench him. He needs to be out there as much as possible until he uh, proves that he doesn't deserve to be out there any longer. You can always email the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. We got an email from Michael Stout asking, do you think the Nationals would consider trading Yadiel Hernandez, uh, Michael's a man after my own heart. I mean, it's funny, you know, we talked about Nelson Cruz as a potential trade ship. Might it be that Yadiel Hernandez emerges as that? But it's also a little more complicated with Yadiel because, yes, he's older, mid-30s, but he's under team control for years to come. So you actually have him under your control for years to come. So it's like, okay, is he a building block? Well, he's in his mid-30s. But on the other hand, he's not going at a free agency anytime soon. What do you think the Nats think? Do you think they would try to flip him this year? Or do you think they say, hey, this guy can hit. We'll keep him for as long as he can hit. I have no idea. We were talking about it ourselves, again, in kind of a joking way, because who would have ever even imagined that this would be a conversation we'd be having. But the key there is, you know, in your mind as a GM, as a baseball executive, you have an idea of what somebody is worth in a trade. And you always think, okay, well, if it's somebody who's in his contract year, here's what we can reasonably expect as a rental player to get him. Okay, well, if it's somebody who has a year and a half to go, like Trey Turner last year, here's what, how much more we could get for him. If you have somebody with four more years of control, you're typically saying, we're going to get a huge haul of prospects for him, except that's not who Yadiel Hernandez is. He's a 34-year-old, only in his like second full big league season. So I think it's really hard just to evaluate what would an appropriate return be for him. I'm sure teams are not going to offer up, you know, multiple top-level prospects for a guy at his age. Then again, if you're Mike Rizzo, you're not just going to give him away. Why would you do that when you have control of him for all these years? So I don't know the right answer to that one. I think you let this play out. You see what is he doing over the course of the summer. Can he really be a successful essentially everyday big league hitter? If so, maybe you say, let's keep him around here for a little while. The DH long-term helps in a way, even if in the long run, he's not an everyday player, you know, as a pinch hitter, that's a really nice thing to have your disposal. He's not going to cost you a lot. So I wouldn't say they're like eager to move him, but I guess when the time comes in July, the team's out of the race, he's still hitting really well. You listen to what's out there for him. And I just think it's fascinating. Like, I don't know what a 34-year-old Yadiel Hernandez with four years of control left, what he's reasonably worth. I don't know what you ask for for him. It's such a weird situation. He so perfectly embodies the Nats. Older player who's young into his major league career. Like I've joked so many times about the Nats rebuilding with older guys. Like Yadiel Hernandez is that guy. Age 34 season. He's not due to be a free agent until the 2027 season. So 2026, 2027. He's not even due to be arbitration eligible until the 2024 season. Like, he's not even arbitration eligible yet. If you think about that, it's nuts. So yeah, this is a very unique circumstance, but he's hitting like crazy right now. And it feels, you know, talk about like 
someone like Escobar right now being an automatic out. Yadiel Hernandez right now feels like an automatic hit. Every time he comes up, you just feel like he's going to get a hit. Yeah, it's like on command right now. And that's why you can't bench him. You got to keep him in there until he does something that says he needs to be benched. You got to keep him in there, even if that means Nelson Cruz gets some more days off. And, you know, he's dealing with a bad back, so they want to just give him a day. Whether it's that, whether it's uh, subbing out for Lane Thomas in left field, or even having Thomas in center and giving Victor Robles the day off, you have to find a way to put Yadiel Hernandez in your lineup and probably somewhere in the top half of the lineup, given how well he's performing. You mentioned Lane Thomas. Good to see him hit a home run on Wednesday night. He was an Nats starting left fielder and number six batter. Uh, one for two with a solo homer and a walk. Thomas in the Nats, one run fifth, a leadoff homer to left field on a one-two pitch. So the homer going a projected 431 feet. You mentioned Victor Robles. I'm curious about this. So we talked about the uh, three errors that the Nats made in this game. Robles was not charged with an error, but he failed on a diving attempt on the Connor Joe two-run triple with one out and what ended up being that five-run Rockies fourth. So Victor essentially sold out to try to make the catch. Do you know, does David Martinez want Robles making a diving attempt like that? The ball ends up going all the way to the wall, or would Davey have preferred Victor to have played that ball more conservatively? If he thinks that he has a good chance to make the play, then yes, he's okay with it. You know, he thought he had a chance to catch it. You know, yeah, he went for it, so yeah, there was no hesitation, that's for sure. So um, it was good to see him go after the ball like that. He doesn't want that half-hearted attempt at it. If you think you can make the play and you go all out for it, so be it. If you don't get it, okay. Now, you know, ideally you find a way to knock it down, keep it in front of you, at least it's easier said than done. Without having really rewatched that one multiple times, I don't know what the right answer was, but I can tell you that he did go all out for it. It wasn't a, well, should I, should I not? Yeah, I'll go for it. No, it was, I'm going to make this play and he goes all out for it at full extension and he just didn't make the play and it cost them. I think those are the kind of mistakes that Davey can live with. It's the tentative errors. It's the sloppy plays on the infield like we saw. He would always rather see a guy make an error of aggression than an error of uh, being too tentative in the field. Yeah, and I think especially with Victor, we know he can make that catch. And so you can't hindsight it and say, well, he should have done that. He didn't make the catch. Well, if he makes it, you know, you're throwing bouquets at the guy. So you're gonna you're not going to always convert on those attempts, but he can convert on those attempts. We have seen that. Uh, Well, zero relief pitchers were used by Davey Martinez on Wednesday night. First time this season that we can say that. But we on Wednesday did have bullpen news for the Nats. And the news, sadly, is not good. Uh, The Nats on Wednesday afternoon transferred Sean Doolittle to the 60-day injured list. Uh, Bad news there. The Nats also claimed reliever Corey Abbott off outright waivers from the San Francisco Giants and optioned Abbott to AAA Rochester, but the Nats have had Sean Doolittle or had had Doolittle on the 10-day injured list, put him on that on April 20th with the left elbow sprain. Now he's been moved to the 60-day IL, and we learned on Wednesday that uh, Doolittle has received a platelet-rich plasma injection, a PRP injection in his left elbow. So it's unfortunately going to be a lengthy time until we see Sean Doolittle pitch again for the Nats. Yeah. So once you have that injection, it's six weeks before you can start throwing again. So that's why they make the move to put him on the 60 day. It would make him eligible in late June. So it's not 60 days from today. It's 60 days from when he first went on the IL. So, you know, they've already got a couple weeks into this. The sense of this is, look, when the injury happens and they diagnose it as an elbow sprain, a sprain of the UCL ligament, we know what that is and what that means. In the back of your mind, you always have that fear of the worst case scenario means Tommy John surgery. Well, that's always the last resort. 
and you try to do everything else you can before you get to that. The best case scenario was take a week to 10 days off, get some rest and rehab, and then go out and try to throw and see if it gets any better. Well, that didn't happen. They decided at some point just before the road trip started to go ahead and take the next step, which is the PRP injection. So you can look at it as you know one of two ways. You can say bad news because it's going to knock them out longer, or you can say this is another attempt to do something without resorting to surgery. And if it works, then he could avoid it and maybe come back and pitch you know, shortly before the All-Star break, something like that. So I think it's worth a shot at this point in the season, at this point in his career, you don't just want to jump right in and have the surgery. Remember Joe Ross last year had a tear of his UCL. They opted for rest and rehab and he made it, you know, into spring training and, and thought he was going to be fine and then winds up that he has a bone chip that needed surgery. So, you know, there's still a reason to hold out hope here that this could work for Sean and that he can come back and pitch this year. If it doesn't, now you got to start talking about other options, and that's where you go to the only, really the only other option at that point probably is Tommy John's surgery. You hope it doesn't come to that. But you get why they didn't want to make that leap quite yet. You give it one more shot with this injection, hope that it works. Maybe he is back sometime pitching this summer. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, he had looked so good for the Nats to begin this season. Six games, five and a third scoreless and walkless innings, six strikeouts. He faced 17 batters. He retired 16 of them. Like, it was feeling like 2017 all over again. And then uh, age or, you know, wear and tear on the elbow, whatever you want to say, caught up to Sean. So we'll hope for the best. And uh, hopefully he's back pitching for them at some point this summer. But, you know, we'll see. Well, game three for the Nats at the Rockies Thursday afternoon at 310. Aaron Sanchez will be the Nats starting pitcher. I tell you what, if Sanchez pitches well on Thursday, forget it. Everyone on the Nats should play the lottery. Fetty on Tuesday night, Corbin on Wednesday night, Sanchez on Thursday afternoon. Not exactly Maddox, Glavitt, and Smoltz, but man, this could end up being some series if Aaron Sanchez pitches well on Thursday. He's done all right so far, you know. I mean, he got his first win last time in San Francisco. Interestingly enough, that start was the Apple TV game in San Francisco. This one's a YouTube game, online only. Maybe Aaron Sanchez pitches well when he's only streaming and not on cable TV. We'll have to see how that works out. Who knows? Some people do their best work when they're streaming. So maybe Aaron Sanchez (laughs) is one of those people. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the podcast, email Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. We continue to enjoy your voice memos telling tales of your first experiences at Major League Games. And so we'll leave you with this voice memo from Katie from DC. Hi, this is Kate from DC. My first memory of being at a baseball game wasn't my first game ever, but it's the first one I remember. I was five years old and it was August 18th, 1997 at Camden Yards, Orioles versus Angels. My parents got tickets from a friend and they weren't sure if we should go because my mom was nine months pregnant. They decided we should go to the game anyway. And shortly after it started, my mom took me and my older sister to the bathroom and suddenly told us we had to leave. We were both disappointed until she told us she had gone into labor and we were about to have a new baby sibling. And then we were really excited. It was a long drive from Baltimore, so there was some concern, but my mom did not in fact give birth to my sister at the game or in the car. They made it to the hospital and she actually wasn't born until the following day. So even though we weren't at the game for long, I consider it a great baseball memory and it's a great story for my little sister to tell. And we even still have the tickets from that game. 
I was really into baseball as a kid, and I played Little League. But by the time the Nats came to D.C., I was a young, cranky teenager and had unfortunately stopped paying attention to baseball for a while and eventually moved away for college. My little sister is now almost 25, and she and I are both big Nats fans, despite her almost being born at an Orioles game. And she's actually the one who got me excited about baseball again when I moved back to D.C. as an adult. Thanks for this idea. It's been great to hear everyone's stories. I love the podcast, and go Nats. There goes a runner. High drive, deep to left field, way back. Gonzalez takes a look. Goodbye, baseball! Oh, Vinny Castilla adds a home run to the double and triple, and now needs only a single to complete the cycle. 